Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Angelique Millet, who is a parent-child coach, pediatric sleep consultant, and family sleep researcher. Dr. Millet's diverse background includes training in child play, art, and nature therapies, child development and sleep, and work as a child psychologist. Her commitment to children and parents spans 25 years, and she continues to develop programs to meet families where they're at. Her approach allows her to work with diverse communities, both nationally and internationally. Angelique has developed the Millet Method, a multidisciplinary approach to family sleep and child behavior. The Millet Method does not follow one specific sleep or behavioral method, but rather uses a toolbox of different methods and approaches and takes into account various factors, including child temperament and history, culture, family social support, access to nature play, parental overwhelm, history of trauma, and parent-child mental health and wellness. Angelique has worked with more than 15,000 families and presents professional workshops to nonprofits, government agencies, Fortune 500 companies, universities, and parent groups across the country and internationally. Angelique also consults with juvenile products manufacturers in their development of innovative sleep and child development designs. Let's listen to the interview. Well, hi, Angelique. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Keith. Thanks so much for having me. It was uh, great to get the invite, and I'm pleased to be here today. Yeah, definitely. So I, I've known about your work for some years. Um, when I had my my own children and uh, we had little kids, you know, a, a number of di- different people used your services. I forgot if we might have gotten some consultation from you at one point, and I ended up kind of getting on your your email list. And so I've seen, you know, the work that you've been doing over time. And I had a couple that I'm working with and they're struggling with the the children's sleep and that's affecting, you know, kind of adding to the difficulties in the relationship. And I was just thinking it would be interesting to have you on and talking about, because I know there's different perspectives on sleep with children, sleep with infants, um, and then also, you know, sleep issues that come up and just general, you know, that sleep is so important related to health and memory consolidation and all sorts of things. So I just thought it would be a really interesting topic. Um, So I want to get into all that. But first, I always like to hear about, you know, how you got doing what you're doing. What was kind of your evolution of your thinking to get where you are today? Well, I love answering this question because uh, uh, certainly there were a lot of uh, historical doors that opened to get me here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I started out uh, as a midwife then worked my way, and that was in my early 20s, and then worked my way into a, a birth doula and postpartum doula. Uh-huh. Basically means I was there for families as they were giving birth, and then I would spend time with them postpartum weeks or even months, uh, helping them as they made that transition of parenthood. And as I was doing that work, that was being my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to joke that I uh, did not party in my 20s. I was helping baby sleep at night, (laughs) just deeply fascinated by how families made that transition to parenthood and familyhood. And uh, my field work was sleeping on the floors of these families' homes and the kids' baby's nursery. Uh, There were all kinds of families that I worked with, all kinds of babies, all kinds of birth complications, feeding, Mm -hmm. digestion issues, and the list goes on. And uh, I was just a bright-eyed, deeply curious, interested 20-year-old uh, who just wanted to understand this uh, this a- area, the space of where insomnia in parents, sleep deprivation in parents, uh, depression, anxiety, how the couple, if it was a couple or a single mm-hmm. parent, navigated all of the particulars around that transition. And then you add in how this little baby develops and bond, yeah. is feeding, and how they start to come into their little bodies. So I saw sleep as this lens into uh, this sort of like a uh, portal mm-hmm. to understand a lot of different aspects about that transition. And when I started to look at the research, so that would have been, I'm going to be 50 this year. So that was almost 30 years ago. Oh, wow. And I've, so I've been doing this sleep where I'm going to say roughly uh, 25 years that uh, I was looking at the research. I was surprised to find that most of the research was rather dated. It was looking at a sleep method called extinction cried Mm -hmm. out 
which is a method where you put a baby down at bedtime or even a child and you don't return until the morning. Yeah. And the idea is that you extinguish, which is very interesting word to use, but you extinguish the cries, extinguish the needs, extinguish the feeds. Mm-hmm. And the research was uh, sparse. <laughs> to say the least, it was dated. I was just shocked to find out there was nothing out there that was really answering the questions I was asking. Yeah. My parents were asking about, well, what's really happening with sleep? So uh, the interesting thing I would try to get out to professional conferences and try to, at that point, as I was building my interest in the field, well, let's start teaching about what I'm seeing in the field and see if there's mm-hmm. other things. And the response was, well, sleep's not important. We're just not getting inter- any interest in sleep. So this would have been the nineties. Wow. We're not getting any interest in sleep. There's other topics, but that's not the one where we get no interest mm-hmm. in sleep. Why have things changed right in 20, 25 years? So I just put my nose to the grindstone and just kept that field work up and develop what I call now the Millette method, which is pulling from all these different disciplines and modalities to understand uh-huh. uh, how child's temperament, their history, mm even their birth, their early development, uh, their uh, developmental milestones, growth spurts, how they separate from their caregivers, you know, uh-huh. what's historically imprinted that separation. Um, even uh, looking at uh, aspects of the parent's fertility mm-hmm. before they even have this baby. Sure. Have multiple losses, how that, um, you know, informs the parents thinking around separating Sleep, yeah. it turns out for babies and for kids is about separating mm. this process of, of slow separation from the caregiver that takes place, not in a straight line. It's not linear, but it's quite yeah. fluid. So that really started to inform the method. I was looking, of course, at demographic culture, Yeah, how family feel supported by their community, their biological family, their yeah. family of origin, so to speak. Are they from another country parenting in this country for the first time? without support on what complications have arisen in their lives, medical or events that inform their feelings of safety or security, because that Mm -hmm. also inform how they see their child's well-being. And that's just to name a few mental health. Of course, we look at. Yeah. Uh, And then I started to develop this toolbox of different methods because it's not one size fits all Mm -hmm. Extinction wasn't going to work to me extinction is rather outdated it looks at sleep as if that's the problem baby the problem child that's manipulating the parent and the parents failing and all they they have to just fuck up just get tough and then rise and then they'll be unsuccessful and i don't think that paradigm is helpful close the chapter on that it's probably how we to sleep and we're going to look at it from a really different perspective Hmm. the toolbox allows me to use all kinds of different methods and then i can modify the method based on those variables i just shared with you to really fit what the family needs it's not the problem child or the problem parent it's that family going through some kind of transition Mm -hmm. and getting their needs met as a family and sleep is that portal that gets them to pick up the phone and call me Oh, great. Yeah, and it, 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 sleep is so important because, right, postpartum depression is so significantly related to lack of sleep. And, you know, uh, particularly I do a lot of work with couples and oftentimes uh, in, in emotionally focused couples therapy, there's the concept of attachment injury. And oftentimes there's a lot of attachment injuries in the relationship during this time of the birth of the first child. And, you know, the Gottman research on 80, uh, 68% of couples having a significant decrease in their satisfaction relationship. There's all these kind of things that are happening as well as of course, the child attachment and learning to soothe and so on. It's such an important piece. And I'd be interested in um, what, you talk a little bit about what the different kind of philosophies are. There's the philosophy of the, you know, cry it out, but I know there's, you know, also kind of different philosophies. There's attachment parenting, things like that. Um, you know, can you speak a little bit about kind of the range of, of ways that folks think about it? And then I'd love to hear how you kind of integrate. Oh, yeah, I would like to do that because I think it's so helpful and, you know, in terms of thinking about how to match, I will say there's not a perfect method, but there's a good enough sleep method for this child, for this family. Mm-hmm. So we, so I look at sleep methods uh, based on parent proximity, meaning how close is the parent 
in proximity to their child as they're doing the method. Um, crying. So mm -hmm. is there a range of crying that's going to take place from, say, a no low cry up to, say, crying? Uh, and then, of course, I look at what I call responsiveness as a variable, which means is the parent doing a lot to jump in or is the parent holding back a little bit, giving that child space? Mm -hmm. And so we'll chart those basically on a graph to really figure out what's going to be the best fit for this family. And then we'll take that a step further. Uh, and when I say we, I have a team of 10 that I've trained in this work. They're masters, PhD level. Okay. They're counselors, nurses, lactation consultants who have a, a real deep love, passion, focus for this work as well. And they see the, the range of dynamics uh -huh. that I bring to the work and, and use it with their families that they're supporting. So um, I would say for babies, we're looking at some approaches that range between very low crying. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, clever marketing to say no cry. Yeah. I know there's books written that say no cry. But I think yeah, there, that there is kind of a camp out there that, you know, kind of you're not wanting the baby to cry at all. You're wanting to make sure that they're going to feel abandoned or they're, you know, um, is that kind of the perspective or what is the perspective with that kind of the no cry approach? I think that came largely out. It was like a, a antithesis to the cry it out program. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. that was really all that was available. So when I believe it was Elizabeth Pantley that was coining the term. I'll quote me on that. I can double check, but I sure, think sure. Antley, uh, was one of the folks that was pointing out is basically a no cry method, which was, Hey, for those folks that don't want to do a cry it out program, here's a no cry. Mm. My problem with it is that it ends up being that parents take that in and they think that no cry means that they've been successful at parenting. Mm -hmm. That the entire job is to get their little one to stop crying. And the truth is babies cry. Yeah, yeah. For all with unexplained reasons. Talk to a parent that's had a baby with colic or reflux, mm -hmm. which is about 35% of parents, a third of the parents off, just right off the bat, have no powers of predictability. They're just going to have a baby that cries a lot. Yeah, yeah. No matter what they do. It's not, it's not necessarily their fault or they're doing something right or wrong. It's sometimes just something that's, that's going to happen, particularly with colicky and gassiness and so on. Yeah. That's it that they're just going to cry a little bit more. So, so I think that no cry uh, term came out of that. I prefer to say low cry because yeah. I think delineates between say a sleep training method where we let a baby cry versus more hands-on jumping in and, and doing some soothing or comforting techniques. So for example, I developed over 25 years ago, this method called rinse and repeat method. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it's a pick up and put down and shush path. It is a low cry method. It's not a sleep training method, meaning the parent stays with their newborn or baby. They offer a lot more padding, shush, and comforting. Mm -hmm. Looking at sleep science, they're capturing these things called sleep windows where a baby has an optimum yes. time to fall asleep and they have this release of sleep hormones to get to sleep. And if the parent can identify those signs and then facilitate that entry to sleep, the baby's going to have a little easier time falling asleep. Yeah. And, and that actually makes me think too, uh, a lot of, a lot of the early years are coming back now. My kids are eight, and <laughs> right. now, but, but right. It was, I think I recall that like in the first three months or four months, you know, you kind of maybe didn't worry so much about, you know, kind of, cause they were just in that, whatever they say, the fourth trimester or so on. And they weren't going to be sleeping through the night yet because of their body weight is in a certain weight. Um, but that idea of, yeah, like kind of, staying attuned for the sleep signs and noticing and then kind of helping, you know, them kind of gradually and then putting them down when they're just kind of about to go to sleep or such. Sometimes I think about too, even adults, it's almost like we're walking down the stairs to sleep. Sometimes we need to wind down and kind of like, you know, read a book or relax a little or, you know, rather than just doing a bunch of work and then getting in bed or something, you kind of have to take those steps down to sleep. Well, and then of course, uh, the part of that entryway for, especially for new parent, but it could also be first, second, third or fourth time parent. I get plenty of parents that say, Hey, it's my third time at this. What's going on? I don't, I can't solve this sleep thing. Yeah. That every kiddo is different. Their temperaments are yes. different. And so as a parent, you know, again, powers of predictability, you don't know what kind of baby you're going to get mm -hmm. the juicy part of parenting. You're just on a wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
not so juicy when you're missing out on sleep. Like, wait a second, you're very vocal. You cry a lot. You need constant movement to sleep. And maybe that's a second time parent. They said the first one just slept. Mm-hmm. We thought we were great parents. We just yeah. thought, <laughs> you know, we, we were like, we're amazing at this. Friends. Yeah. <laughs> judging our friends who kids didn't sleep and say, why well, can't they figure this out? And then they get the second kid that's like, needs constant movement, needs a lot of shushing, dark room, there's mm-hmm. talking, parents are literally just bouncing for hours going, oh, yeah. okay, we're humbled. So I think part of the work is to teach parents that the these little ones have their own temperament. Mm-hmm. And they're quite robust, even at birth, that yeah. it's wired in. Uh, so that, you know, no low cry method I develop, the rinse and repeat is going to be about identifying sleep windows, and looking at the temperament of the baby, even looking at their birth history, we've certainly seen this and the research is starting to bear it out that babies that have a lot of complications at birth or a lot of interventions at birth tend to have a lot more to vocalize and say about it later. Yeah. Not always, but the research is bearing out. They may have some trouble with sleep later. The other thing we're looking at is like I said, that one third of little ones are going to have that colic reflux. Mm-hmm. Looking at how comfortable they are in their bodies. I don't believe in doing any crying related program until they start to develop some settling. Their circadian rhythms aren't even fully developed at birth. Yeah. The idea that a sleep consultant would come in and sleep train a two week old when their circadian rhythm, which is like knowing the difference between day and night is just to me. And so we really want to shift this into thinking about that first three to four months, like what you've just described that fourth trimester is a time when they're landing. Mm Mm-hmm. They are developing a circadian rhythm or body clock similar to us where we are awake during the day, we sleep at night. Believe it or not, like those newborns are having bell movements all night long, right? Mm-hmm. And first time parent will say, hey, is this ever going to stop? Do I just do poopy diapers all night? No, yeah. because the circadian rhythms start to match ours. Mm. And by two to four months of age, you stop having poopy diapers at night. Nobody is up at night, poop, yeah. right? It's yeah. the same concept. So there's this educational piece with, especially the first time parents. At really walking him into understanding, hey, this is what their little body, your little one's body is doing. Yeah. So some and of that psychoeducation around kind of where you are and where you're going. That's exactly right. Identifying the sleep windows, what are the signs that your little one gives you that they're starting to fall asleep um, and, and helping pa- parents capture that sleep window so it's easier to get them to sleep, teaching about swaddling. And then uh, talking a little bit about what we call the five self-soothing signs, which are the signs that little ones develop as they start to work their way towards uh, becoming better at Mm -hmm. self-regulation. I think the layman's term is self-soothing. I think a a good word for it is uh, self-regulation. Every single that walks this earth over the course of their early life had to learn these inherent uh, self-regulation tools and skills. Mm -hmm. And they happen on various scales. I won't go into that, but we help sure. parents identify those because they help us know when a baby is moving out of the newborn stage and now into a, a, a baby stage of sleep. Mm-hmm. And then we can start to introduce a method where the uh, like an interval method is a good method. Sure. We, yeah. I want to find out what are those yeah. self-soothing signs. Okay. Well, let's talk about those. So there's five that I've identified in that work that 10 years where I didn't sleep in my time. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I watched all these little ones develop these signs. Uh, so the first one would be hands, fingers to mouth. A newborn doesn't have the, any self-control. Mm-hmm. The proprioceptive system is that sort of startle reflex. And you just yeah. look at it, okay, you're helpless. And they just kind of shake, right? Uh-huh. And they start to develop some more fluid and this control and they'll bring their fingers to mouth. And that is a self-regulation piece. That's that mm-hmm. evil tuck. Mm-hmm. So that's self-soothing number one. The second one is that if you're holding a baby that's starting to get tired, they will have a natural reflex that starts to develop at two to four months where they burrow or bury or burrow into your armpit mm-hmm. chest. And they're doing this because they're trying to turn away from all the interesting stimuli in their environment that grows mm-hmm. a brain. But in order to sleep, if they just kept tracking that, they would melt down and become overstimulated. Too stimulating. So they start to have this reflex where they want to get into a dark, a cocoony kind of thing, mm-hmm. typically into the caregiver's body. They'll even try to bite or suck on the inner arm or neck. They'll nurse if that's available. Uh, and the idea is that they want to turn their attention away and, and settle to sleep, self-soothe, settle mm-hmm. self-sleep. So that's our second self-soothing sign. 
The third is the bringing hands to the midline position. You'll see this in the womb. Mm -hmm. where they'll try to hold their little hands in the center of their body. Um, midline is a self-regulating position. A lot of us will try to sleep in that fiddle tuck position where we have some kind of hand or arm kind of in, moved into the middle of the body to bring relaxation and calmness. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's two more uh, signs. Uh, one is, uh, one of the two is the self-soothing cry. Mm -hmm. Newborns melt down when they're getting tired and certainly when they're overtired, but these yeah. two, three, four months of age, they start to develop a new cry. Mm -hmm. it sounds like this. It's really obnoxious when I do it, but nevertheless, here it is. It's this, <laughs> uh, uh, it's like a squeaky door fussing. It's not um, meltdown cry. Mm. Every one of you adults listening to this made that cry when you were a baby. Mm -hmm. You relax yourselves and sleep. And I, I encourage parents when I'm teaching these sleep classes, uh, you know, tonight, when you're going to sleep, close your eyes and make that sound. Mm. Even for like 10 seconds, it sounds silly, but you'll feel your body and your nervous system start to just relax. Yeah. It's almost like a humming. It sounds like. And you're feeling, as I talk about it now, there's this thing that happens with that sound in the baby's body. And you, like I said, every one of us did that. Mm. As the nervous system helps it discharge, self-regulate and get ready for sleep. Interesting. It's also reminding me of, I remember there was like the baby whisper or something like that. And they, uh, talked about, yeah. Yeah, they talked about like, you know, all babies are kind of, they have similar cries or in the beginning. And I remember, uh, yeah, it was like, nah, nah, means like hungry or something. And you can kind of begin to, I don't know if there's anything to that. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. They do make these various intonations and there's this syllable to the crime that can give parents some information about what they need. And this particular cry is happening as they are finishing up a time of player wake or alertness and their body is getting ready to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. If we don't pay attention, if we miss the cry, they now go into a meltdown cry, which is, Hey, I'm overtired. It's too yeah. much. Now I really need your help to get me to sleep. Mm -hmm. You try it, you know, close your eyes at bedtime tonight, make that sound for like 10, 20 seconds. And you will actually feel your body just relax. Uh, so they make that sound again, it's starting between two to four months. And then the last of the five self-soothing signs is the rolling to side, rolling to tummy. Mm. That one tends to come together closer to three, four, five months of age. Nevertheless, it's a really important milestone. The literature is clear. Always put a baby on their back for sleeping. Yeah. And this is because of the very clear research on, on SIDS, sudden infant death. It's a scary topic. Nevertheless, we want to tell our listeners about it and share that it's mm -hmm. always back sleeping. I, I can't say enough that it's, it's demonstrable research in yeah, yeah. efficacy of back sleeping being safe. However, it's not a natural position for babies to be in. Mm. It's a, it's a, in fact, it's a highly unnatural position for babies to be in. And this is why a lot of parents will say my baby fights sleep. The position that babies are in, in the womb is the C curve. Mm. The, the uterus holds that baby in that position quite tightly. In fact, that is a, the body swaddle. Yeah. C curve meaning that they're in a C and their body is naturally held in a fetal tuck. Mm. That baby feels very safe and secure. Putting a baby on their back to sleep is a very uh, exposed, vulnerable position. Yeah, they're like open. That's it's it. Open. That's it. So this is why we recommend safe swaddling technique to mimic that, what we are calling the fourth trimester, but it's essentially mimicking the uterus, the womb Yeah. is now because they can't control that the hands to midline position. Now it's happening with the facilitation of the swaddle and that baby now can feel self-regulated to settle, to sleep, to relax, to sleep. Mm. So in effect, once the baby starts to roll or move, it is no longer safe for them to be in the swaddle position and to be mm -hmm. swaddled. They need to have their hands free. Yeah. And frankly, they're going to move into a sleep position of their own choosing. That's when you go into like sleep sacks. That's exactly right. Now a sleep sack means their hands are free so they can safely push off the mattress to find their sleep position of choice, which is very often side or even tummy position. Mm. And I'm talking about a classic crib sleeping arrangement. I work with all kinds of demographics, all kinds of family, sure. families that will also follow coast, uh, safe co-sleeping, which I want to really talk about uh, if we have time, because yeah. that is there as well. Um, I'm talking about the classic crib sleeping position. 
And the idea is that the baby's now going to roll into a position of their own choosing, which actually facilitates sleep as well, because just like us, they want to be in a position that they want to be in mm-hmm. that they've chosen to get themselves into for sleep. Definitely. Those well, are the facts of sleeping science. Yeah. And I, I, and I think this is right. I mean, I've conceptualized also, you know, especially when like I've got one family right now where um, the, the mom is, uh, the son is now in kindergarten and she's beginning. She had always laid with him in bed till he went to sleep and then get up and she is transitioning. I think they were, he was sleeping in their room also. So transitioning into his own room and so on. And, um, you know, part, I was kind of also encouraging, you know, kind of helping with the sleep training because it is helping to develop that self-soothing, you know, that emotional regulation kind of pieces, that self-regulation through that process of kind of helping the kids learning how to sleep on their own and so on at whatever age that may be, depending on the family's culture or whatever it might be. Um, because sometimes that is, it is a hard period and it is a transition. And sometimes that it brings up a lot of distress in the parents too. So sometimes it's just easier to just lay down with them and go to sleep with them or whatever it might be. That's right. That's um, right. It begs the question is, is there like a, a magic time? Is there a preferred time? Have you missed a window if you don't sleep train? Yeah. yeah. And the truth is there's, there's no research or data that supports any of that. Anybody that tells a parent, you have to do it by this age, you have to do it by this and the baby is this weight. There's no science at all that supports that. It's totally made up. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, there's not a single look of research or science to support any of it. I say to parents, it has everything to do with with the the sort of the path this family is taking. Yeah. sleep and self-care. Yeah, go ahead. You could speak on that and, and before we get into the interval uh, kind of uh, technique with the, yeah, how do you think about that or how to, you know, when families are looking for recommendations, you know, because I know you're saying based on culture, like, you know, and on family preferences of whether they're going to co-sleep, whether they're going to have the bassinet in the bedroom with them, whether they're going to, yeah, have the child in a separate room or a crib or such or whether they'll be sleeping in the bed until they're, you know, uh, yeah, elementary school or or older. I would say that the answer really lies within the the family. Uh, Every family will answer that question a little differently. There uh, is, if we're looking at the science, uh, I I always like to quote this when I'm teaching classes, there's just as many studies that show that go sleeping leads to super confident, independent adults. And then just as many studies that show that it hindered. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Not one of those variables. Yeah. Well, there's just as many studies that show that co-sleeping, or pardon me, that sleep training rather, uh-huh. uh, same outcomes. So I say to families, what, you know, really the answer is like, you're going to make this choice based on like what's going to work individually for your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the the first starting point is is to start to answer the question: Are the parents getting their needs met with the sleep mm-hmm. right arrangement? Is the child getting their needs met? No, and I'm not just talking about good sleep. I'm talking about bonding and friendly yeah. connection for the couple. Uh, and then we can go through a whole list of those kinds of questions for each family individually. Typically, by the time a family picks up the phone to call me, they're at like what I call a crossroads moment. Yeah. Again, I'm working with uh, from z- you know zero to ten year olds. Mm-hmm. They've usually come to a crossroads moment saying, "Hey, this isn't working for us this current way." Yeah, and I would say that the new generation of parents are quite savvy. They're using a lot of social media to educate themselves. So they, for example, see have seen the research from the American Academy of Pediatrics recommending room sharing with your baby for the first six months at least. Mm. And this is really interesting because when I first started doing this, what, 20, 25 years ago, the recommendation was get that baby to sleep in the crib in another room. Yeah. Otherwise you'll never get them out of your room. And this, you know, again, these sort of things, you follow that during thought there was no science behind it whatsoever. Yeah. It was just a, a, a recommendation based on a, a deep emphasis, cultural emphasis in, in here in the U.S. on early independence. Mm-hmm. Now, what we've found, and this is, I would say, credit to uh, the really interesting work from James McKenna. He's an anthropologist who look mm-hmm. at sleep through that lens, that uh, he has sleep labs or he has parents co-sleep. Mm-hmm. 
And he found that in fact, there were reduced incidents of these, what we'll call trigger breathing heart rate issues mm. in newborns and young babies when the parents slept in proximity to their baby, meaning that they were in the same room. Mm-hmm. Something is happening, we're not sure, but there's some kind of regulation that's taking place in the early mechanisms of breathing and heart rate in that baby. When the caregiver is close by, they're literally regulating off the caregivers, probably mm-hmm. the simplest way to describe. So that. some of that like polyvagal theory kind of idea that we're kind yeah. of a nervous system is taking in information from other nervous systems around us. You got it. We're attachment beings. Mm-hmm. Babies develop, right? And the sleep wasn't any different. Yeah. It was so important, in fact, that the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, in their newest release of information, said, hey, I believe it was even 2015, so it's even dated in that way. They said, let's at least room share. They're not going to go out and say anything about co-sleeping, but they're saying, yeah. let's room share. Keep that bassinet next to your bed, at mm-hmm. least for six months, and if you can, up to 12 months. Wow. Which is a profound shift over 25 yeah. years of doing this work, a profound shift. And it's a testament to so much great research coming out, looking at all these variables we're talking about today. Mm, Great. Okay. And then, and did you, what you were about, you mentioned there was a comment maybe on safe co-sleeping if the child is sleeping in the bed. This that's correct. So when I looked at the research on co-sleeping and of course, working with co-sleeping parents, I felt like there was a disconnect between what the AAP was recommending, which is zero tolerance co-sleeping. Mm-hmm. It distinguish that means bed sharing versus not bed sharing. Bed yeah. sharing is the baby's in the bed with the parent SIDS risk uh, lasts from zero to 12 months of age. And the highest risk of SIDS is between two to four months of age, mm-hmm. which coincidentally happens to be a time when there's a lot of development in yeah. the so the deal here is that the research shows in the U.S. up to uh, 80% of families will co-sleep, bed share, room share with their little ones, zero to three years of age, mm-hmm. which, and then given my field work, I've worked with over 10,000 families over these years. It, what I started to realize is the left hand's not tired of the right hand. Yeah. I'm not really going to do my best job of facilitating sleep solutions with families if I go across the board to say, well, there's just no coast. There's no bed sharing. Mm-hmm. So then those families are actually going to continue to do it without uh, reliable safety measures. So there, uh, Kathleen Kendall Tackett mm-hmm. is a fabulous researcher who has put together safe guidelines for co-sleeping. She's also a breastfeeding advocate because the truth is for those breastfeeding moms, a lot of them will initiate bed sharing. Yeah. And she's putting out uh, a list of co-sleeping or bed sharing safety guidelines uh, that, you know, they're, I think they're probably quite logical. It's like, don't yeah. drink and co-sleep. Don't drink and bring your baby to bed. Yes, yes. <laughs> don't bring your pets to bed if your baby's in bed with you. Yes, yes. Don't do drugs. Um, so she started to really tease out in her research the families that were bed sharing with a lot of, uh, you know, education uh, and and of course information about how to do it um versus versus like an unsafe bed sharing yeah you know it still is controversial in this country but the truth is there are a lot of families that are bringing babies to bed yeah definitely and there are a lot of families that aren't bringing babies to bed because they're terrified of doing it and they're putting babies in unsafe sleeping contraptions Mm. and in fact in my practice of 25 years the families that have experienced a SIDS loss, unfortunately it's happened. I've been families where they haven't been bed sharing, but the family thought that, okay, if I sleep on the sofa recliner, put them in this special sleep contraption, yeah. it'll be safe. It'll be uh, safe instead of the bed. Yeah. So my point is, if you're gonna do some bed sharing, go look for Kathleen Kendall Tackett's work. If you've got a family member or friend doing it, make sure they're empowered and educated yeah. with safe sleeping strategies for bed sharing. Great. Now, one of the things that you also mentioned earlier was the responsiveness, location, and the crying. Um, yeah, can you say more? I don't know if that ties in with the the um, interval kind of uh, approach. So interval method is the only uh, crying method that I'll use for a baby. I don't do any crying methods. By crying, I mean we're letting them do a little bit of crying. I delay the start of any crying methods until they're at least... 16 to 21 weeks of age or older. And they have demonstrated to us, they've organized at least four out of five of those self-soothing signs Mm -hmm. that we 
talked about. I think that's just the clearest way to start to understand what, what this little baby can do. It mm. also helps us start to tease out a sleep issue versus like the newborn stage of transition where parents like, I'm not sleeping. Mm. We're not, we just don't want to sleep train newborn because their circadian rhythm's not developed. They're filling up this, what I call bank of attachment, getting their needs met consistently, building security resiliency through those first months. Their bowels are learning to move bowel movements. Parents are, yeah. So uh, interval method is a method that works in three to seven nights versus the rinse and repeat method I touched on earlier that I did. mm -hmm. Takes about four to six weeks. It's a slow, gradual separation between baby and parent. Mm -hmm. And that's for a parent that's philosophically opposed to any crying or the, maybe the baby's four months and younger, you know, they're yeah. just too young to start a crying program. Maybe they have health issues um, and a range of other reasons why we might use that method. But for a parent that calls me and says, Hey, we're really sleep deprived. I'm struggling with some depression because of the sleep loss, or I'm headed back to work, or I'm ignoring literally my family and my own self-care, my other kids, because it's taking me hours to help my baby sleep. We might consider this interval method with some caveats and modifications I've made to it. Um, I'm a breastfeeding educator and there's no research that says you have to extinguish all breastfeeding to be successful with sleep training. Sure. Using interval methods. That's just, again, debunking these myths that are perpetuated in the sleep Mm -hmm. work. But you can absolutely be successful at breastfeeding a baby at night and then also getting um, REM sleep cycles linked up at night. Yeah. So we'll use this interval method. Well, let's just, for example, say we have a four to six month old, we might identify one or two, maybe even three feeds at night that are what we call good full feeds. Mm-hmm. You can use the method at bedtime and through the night to link up those sleep cycles outside of the feed. And those, uh, that method would take three to seven nights. So it can resolve that sleep loss in particular for families that have, are really exhausted. Um, fairly quickly, they can implement that method and get pretty good results with minimal crying I have found. And we do the method side of growth spurts of developmental phases as well. Mm-hmm. Sure that we're not doing it. If like the mom is going back to work, we don't start that night. Yeah. Yeah. We find a period of time where it's opportune for the in particular for mom and baby to make that transition or the, the caregiver that's spending the most time. Sometimes we've had the other parent is doing a lot of the feeding at night. So we have yeah. to have yeah, that's so kind of creating like a schedule to so that that way the baby is kind of full throughout the night and and not necessarily having to wake up and cry and then come. It's a it's a for sure a schedule, but we're tracking data before he started to find that baby's opportune uh, body clock. Let's mm-hmm. say that that baby wants to fall asleep at six o'clock, but the parents oh. always at seven p.m. is the bedtime. Then, you know, we educate about hey, well, that's just your baby need. Yeah, let's say that baby is having five feeds at night, but we, de- we determined through just a period of assessment, we collect data that the baby's kind of snacking mm-hmm. kind of using yeah. those feeds. You know, I just worked with the family and the baby would have 10 feeds at night. Wow. But they were on the bottle and we explored further. They were taking one ounce each time. Mm-hmm. This family was up all night, but they were relegated to this, like, Hey, well, this, this is how this baby likes to eat. There was no medical issues. What was happening is a baby got habituated. They came to expect every time they woke up, just to have a little hit of milk, a pacifier. There's no nutrition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, it's just, tr- we want to track that data ahead of time. So I can really understand this baby, this baby's body clock. I work with toddlers too. They're not feeding at night. And that's even a whole other conversation about sure, their sure. as well and what their developmental needs are. Um, so we collect that data and then it helps me understand where to set up the feeds at night and where to implement the method. And then I don't work on naps and nights at the same time. Again, no science that shows that um, how a little one sleeps during the day has to be identical to how they sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And that research is so clear. Just anecdotally, look across the yeah. world. There's little ones sleeping in a daycare program or a pram or grandparents' arms, and then they sleep alone in their own room. Yeah. A, um, so again, it's debunking myths, giving parents well, science. Time something that I didn't know or learned was that, yeah, that actually the better naps that the child has oftentimes, the better they do at night, um, rather than like some people worrying that like, oh, if the baby sleeps during the day, they're not going to sleep during the night or something like that. Yeah. I would say that parents are largely starting to understand how important daytime sleep. It's the time when babies and toddlers follow the information that they've organized and learned during the hours they use sleep time to file it away. 
Because yeah, one that's such an important part of sleep uh, neurologically is is consolidating memory. Um, right. So that's it's a right. piece, and especially for babies, yeah, they're it's almost like they're needing to consolidate every few hours or, that's or so. Right. That's right. That's right. So those the sleep is important uh, during the day, just as it is at night. I remember when when our kids were little, we had been taught kind of to you know kind of soothe them, you know, put them down to bed, not a hundred, you know, hundred percent asleep and then kind of a little less, a little less, and they get more used to falling asleep on their own. And then maybe kind of coming and checking in, soothing a little bit, stepping out, leaving, letting a little crying happen, coming back. I, I, I don't know if that's kind of a, a particular approach or, or how that, you know, to give some crying, but not necessarily kind of just, okay, you're done. We're just going to go out of here and just leave. So that is the interval method you're describing, which is a parent checking crying method. And in intervals mean you go on for about a minute, use the minute to check in, but you're not feeding, you're not handling a bunch. It's just a quick check-in and then you leave after a minute, no matter what state the baby's in. Yeah. I would say the hardest part of the method is the leaving them after that minute. Yeah, it's not easy to do, yeah. but what's to happen is they use the self-soothing that we just described. And by giving them a little space, they actually start to take over the job of getting themselves to sleep. Yeah. Remember, we used to have to set the timer and like just force ourselves <laughs> not to go back in. And then oftentimes by the time the timer went off, they would, the, the baby had fallen asleep. That's um, it. It's hard. It's hard to, to listen to a baby crying and not wanting to run in and, and just, you know, relieve that suffering. Something that it was interesting too that I, when my children were toddlers, I had read um, Alicia Lieberman's um, uh, The Emotional Life of the Toddler. And she right. talked about, yeah, that you, that, you know, sometimes the children have to have their tantrum and go down to the depths of their emotions and come out. You know, sometimes you can give them a hug or you can soothe them out, but sometimes they just need to go through that process. And that later on learning about exposure therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, that idea of, actually sitting with that discomfort, riding that wave rather than like, oh no, we have to prevent that discomfort at all costs. Um, and it really starts from the, the, the sleeping, you know, and uh, I, I imagine too, and how families are responding to distress okay. in the children. Oh, I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. A whole area of my focus with the, especially with toddler sleep is, is really educating parents about that, that this is a feeling state for your little one. They're having feelings. That's not a reflection of poor parenting. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with your child. They're expressing feelings and, and then really buffering the parent and helping them with breathing and staying grounded during that cycle. It could last two minutes, it could last 10 minutes. Uh, but in fact, that it's a healthy extinguish, it's like a healthy release yeah. for that one. And in fact, it does help them to sleep. Uh, I, I don't know how much time we have to talk about the toddler approach that I use because yeah, it's we've got about like eight minutes or so. I would love to hear about that. Yeah. Cause I, uh, yeah, we use a combination of like little rewards or like, you know, checking in every, I'll be back in 10 minutes. Oftentimes they'd fall back asleep before you or right. even timeouts right. of like not sitting like, okay, let's go. And then come on right. back and like resetting. Um, but yeah, how do you do that? Well, so the, the toddler method I developed was largely informed by my work as a child psychologist. And my area of expertise was play therapy, sand mm -hmm. and art therapy, which basically means that you use these modalities to help little ones with feelings, events, traumatic events. And what I found was that generally speaking, even really young kiddos, toddlers weren't walled up <laughs> like mm -hmm. adults were, they could play and they're, it, they'd sort of work through emotions or their histories that way, their events that were traumatic. And what I did is I developed this two-phase approach out of that work because the, the uh, popular sleep method at that time was to just lock the door, uh, throw some rewards at them, but lock the door and let them really, like I said, scream until they sleep. Uh, mind you, with a toddler that could get out of bed or climb out of a crib, yeah. which to me, maybe after, you know, two, three, four hours, they slept, but I saw it as a power struggle lost. I don't think they had learned anything. Mm -hmm. um, I was much more interested based on my, uh, my work and my, the research, uh, how do we develop a sleep method that supports the secure attachment between the parent and the child? But as we do the method, the parent separates still. Yeah. There's still this limit setting separation piece. Cause again, we're, we understand that that's a big part over the arc of childhood, the separation mm -hmm. so phase approach. I start using it for little ones as young as eight to 10 months as they, they start to age out of those baby methods that I use somewhere around yeah. eight to six months of age. 
And then we're gonna call that the pre-toddler stage into the toddler stage and then child stage. The first stage of this approach, I teach parents very simple play-based and storytelling activities mm. because kids learn through play and through language. They're primed for it. They're primed to understand their world through play and through language. Yeah. Activities are very simple. They're easy to teach. I teach parents these little activities. They'll spend about 10 or 15 minutes a day doing them with their pre-toddlers, toddlers, and young kids. Mm -hmm. The theme of those activities is separation and sleep. Mm. For example, like one game we have parents play is hide and seek. Very simple hide and seek or peekaboo in the child's room. Yeah. Which as a parent, we think that's happening as a random act. It's not. Your child is practicing separating and reuniting from you when they play that game. Mm. They're trying to hold the feeling of you. Oh, you're still there. I can't see you. Where'd you go? You're back. Mm. Thank goodness. Yeah. You're, you're back. So we have parents play those games. 50% of the children will spontaneously improve their sleep after one week of playing those games with their parents. Oh, wow. Great. Which is just phenomenal to me. It's really, it's shifting this paradigm again. So parents start to see the kids play as not random, but purposeful. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're building, they're working on skills or they're working through something or. It's integrating separation. Perhaps they've got a fear about the parent leaving. Perhaps something happened to make them scared about the parent leaving. Perhaps they've never slept alone ever. Mm -hmm. So we want to prepare them for that separation of the parent too, who may have a lot of anxiety about the separation for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. So we do that. 50% of the kids will improve sleep just simply from doing the play and, and the storytelling with them, which is amazing. And then the other 50% will start phase two. Phase two is a parent presence method called the chair mattress method. Right. A parent presence method. So remember that scale? Parent presence means we're not just having the parent check on them and leave, check on them and leave. That would freak a toddler out. Mm -hmm. With this method, the parent actually moves into the child's room and sleeps on a mattress by the crib or the child's bed. We give the child what they want, which is the parent. What that does is it creates a positive feedback loop with the child's bed in the room as a safe place to sleep. And now the cortisol levels go down. The child feels safe to learn and safe to sleep. And then over the course of five to 10 nights, we move the parent a little further, a little further away. It's a slow fading of the parent presence in the room yeah. until the parent gets to the doorway and hallway, and then parents back at their room. Mm -hmm. We're seeing phenomenal results with this, especially five to 10 year olds who for all kinds of reasons, have had sleep issues. Yeah. They're not having hours long tantrums at bedtime or at night. Now parents can actually separate from them and have a little couple's time. Mm -hmm. Sleep, at, actually get the sleep that they need at night. Those parents will say, gosh, I feel like I have a newborn again. My eight-year-old yeah. let me leave. Now those parents can get their sleep, get some couple's time, and the child can separate, feel safe to separate at sleep time. Mm -hmm. Great. It's a really dynamic approach. I am very proud of it because it, it just captures this whole other shift in the work yeah. stepping the paradigm of again that toddler that's manipulating the parent sure which i don't believe is true at all it has much more credence on looking at this what is this little one feeling when they separate mm -hmm. how do we buffer them and giving them skills to feel safe to separate from the parent that i feel are going to be skill sets for life we separate at kindergarten yeah your play date they separate when they go to college. They're now separating in a romantic relationship. How do they feel at that separation now? Yeah. Are so, they kind of holding that person still in their heart and feeling, you know, that kind of object permanency or whatever it might be? That's right. So that's that they're right. not experiencing that distress that this person is separation. Yeah. yeah. Also kind of building that muscle to feel that discomfort and kind of having yeah. experience yeah. that that it works out and it's okay and, and so on. A common response when they're doing the, the activities in phase one, the child might say, I can't do this, or I scaled, or yeah. they'll throw the doll that we're doing this play therapy with, sure. or run out of the room. And I say to the parents, not that they're going to fail at, they're not selling you having to fail at sleep changes, they're saying to you, I have feelings. Mm -hmm. That's what we call resistance or emotions yeah. coming. So then it's empowering the parents to say, hey, I see you understand what I'm talking about. You're talking about you and I not seeing each other at night. Yeah. Yeah, I hold you in my heart right here. And thank you mm -hmm. for telling me how you feel about the changes. Yeah. I'm going to hold it in my heart for you. I'll be right here to help you make these changes. Mm -hmm. I'll be. Reminds me of, a, what was that book? The Kissing Hand. Yeah. Where, you know, the, the toddler right. and the parent kissing their hand and then kind of being able to right. you know, turn to it during the day when the parent's not there. That's it. Um, 
Well, this all is so great and interesting. I, I think it's such an important aspect. And I think there's, you know, that that definitely like it sounds like you're saying that a lot of people are getting maybe some education on their own beforehand, maybe even before needing to reach out and get, um, uh, you know, to get the the help or the consultation when the kind of crisis is happening. Do you have resources um, that you have of kind of, you know, preempting or I, I'm, is there a, yeah, a book or any trainings or workshops that you do for parents? What we have available are pre-recorded webinars nice. at a very affordable price. They're under $50. They're an hour long. They'll talk you through the program. Some families will utilize that alone. Yeah. And they never work with me individually and they get great results. Some families will review that, they try it, but they still have additional questions and then they'll reach out to me uh, for additional consultation and then I can really strategize to figure out where they're getting hung up with the method. Okay. Uh, the website is angeliquemollette.com, A-N-G-E-L-I-Q-U-E-M-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.com. We are doing a fabulous website update. We'll roll that out late March and we'll have all sorts of additional resources there for parents to interact with. But uh, for the time being, all those webinars are hanging out on that website and parents okay. can purchase them there and access that information on a range of topics. Perfect. Well, I think this will be a great, you know, information for therapists that are helping families. And also, I think just, again, thinking about attachment and kind of development, as well as so many therapists are parents and going through this process themselves. So this is really helpful. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks a lot. Oh, Keith, it was my pleasure. You can see I'm passionate about this topic and really like the opportunity to share it with you and other folks out there. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sfiap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.